There are two readings this morning. Uh, the first one is um, Psalm 75. And the second reading, which is Daniel chapter 7. We praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Okay? I'm going to turn to Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is God's word. And good morning, everyone. My name is Pete Snow. I'm assistant minister here. Let's turn back to Psalm 75 and pray together. Almighty God, we do come to you this morning, and we pray that you would bless us as we read your word how much we need truth to stand on in this um, bewildering life. And we pray that you would bless each one of us, however familiar we are with the Bible. We pray that in, in confidence, through the name of Jesus, in confidence in the power of your Spirit to change our lives, and knowing that we're praying to the Father who carries us in his everlasting arms. 
Amen. What justice do you long for? What justice do you long to see in life? Are you one of those many who longs to see Grenfell Tower resolve? You know, those who would really were culprits uh, put to justice. Are you one of the many who would say, I long for equal pay so that men and women might be actually just paid what they deserve to be for their jobs? Are you one of those who read, read the news this morning with me and saw, wow, fewer than 5% of crimes in England and Wales are solved. Sorry, robberies and burglaries in England and Wales are solved. Isn't that remarkable? So 95% of robberies in England and Wales at, at the moment are going unsolved. And we live in one of the most just and reliable countries in the world, you would hope. What justice do you long for? Our psalm today, Psalm 75, is about God's justice. And truth be told, uh, I, I long for all those things I just mentioned. But I actually struggle to th- think of it. When I realize that this is a psalm all about God's justice, I'm going to have to talk about how we all, we all long for justice, don't we? But uh, my first thought was not a torrent of instances where I long for justice and it's constantly weighing on my mind. My first thought was, well, I'm not really sure what justice I long for in life. Which might just be a sign to me that I live a rather comfortable lifestyle where justice doesn't press upon me the whole time. I think I'm in the minority in the world today, if that's the case. Maybe it is for you as well. The the Bible promises, and here in our psalm today, is a cry of joy because God is going to bring justice, and it's fantastic. It's it's going to right all the injustices that press upon the people of God down the ages, and it's going to be brilliant. We praise you, God, for your justice. It could be, of course, you're nothing like me, and there is an injustice weighing on you this morning, pressing down on you, which you long to be free of. In that case, this is just the psalm for you. Or maybe there'll be an injustice one day that presses down on you and you'll want to remember on that day what this says. It's here on your service sheets if you want to follow an outline. Two simple things. First of all, it's the people who praise God. And then the main thing, it's God who judges. Firstly then, it's the people who praise God in verse 1. Here we go. We praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You see, we we praise you twice. We we tell of your wonderful deeds. So this invites us to think, wow, wouldn't it be great to to praise God for the right thing? And invites us to think, what what have I been praising, boasting in recently? It's a natural thing to praise and boast, isn't it? We do it all the time. My football team, if they win the World Cup, I'm going to be full of praise for that football team that I never expected to come through. Uh, if uh, the weather is good in this country, oh, you praise it. Isn't the weather fantastic? Oh, you're visiting here? Oh, it's like this all the time. We, the, the weather is fantastic. Uh, if, if we do well at work, then we quietly praise our performance. Isn't it great to perform well? We're full of praising when something is going well. And so too, the people of God are full of praise when they realize what their God is like. Verse 1 again, we praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. Boasting is the other word that gets used in the psalm. So if you flick down to verse 4, we see God saying to the arrogant, boast no more. As in, don't, don't praise yourself anymore. Stop boasting about yourself and start praising the one who is really strong. And the thing that we'll see in this psalm is that God is, God is worthy of praise because he's strong and fair enough to judge. 
I met a guy the other week here who was just visiting church, and he said to me very honestly, I really appreciated this. He said, look, I, I don't normally come to church. I find it very interesting today, but the thing I find really disconcerting about church is the sort of forced praise. It just seems to me, as an outsider, forgive me, that everyone just stands up and they say the same words at the same time, you know, this sort of drill of worship that you have. It just seems like uh, it's totally unthinking. So we had a very good chat about that. And uh, I tried to say, look, sometimes perhaps I am unthinking about all that. But if they've got something worth praising in their God, then it's worth doing. You've got something worth praising in your life, you talk well about it. We've got something worth praising in our life, we do the same. Just like in everyday situations, in the World Cup, in the home, in politics, people praise what they love. At churches then, people gather, as they were gathering in this psalm, to sing it corporately. They gather to boast, to praise God, and they say, we have got something in our life which is brilliant, which is, which is promising to bring justice to all the injustice in the world. We praise God. They should do it if he's that worthy. Verse 1, we praise you for your name is near. So that's his uh, reputation in scripture. We, we, we know that your reputation is near us. It's palpable, it's going to do something. And people tell of your wonderful deeds. That is, we know the stuff you've done in the past and we think it's terrific. We think it's fantastic, God, so we're praising you. And this, this is the thing I really like about the Psalms, or one of them. This is even when you're bruised. This is the Jewish people singing these psalms at first. So th this is a bruised people who, you know, they, they weren't the big dogs in the ancient world. They'd had a heyday under David and Solomon. But when this is written, most probably they are bruised and battered, as we saw last week. This might be about the time of the, the fall of Jerusalem in the temple in 587 BC. And they are wearing the cuts and the scars. And yet they're able to say, we have something to sing about. How do we know all this? Well, look, I hope this might interest you. Um, if you're visiting, forgive me, but I hope this might interest the regulars. We, we can tell something about the book of Psalms, uh, which was a bit of a revelation to me. I used to think that the Psalms was just a bit of a hodgepodge. You know, a bit of like a mixtape that you sort of throw together and you stick on every so often. There's a Psalm here, a Psalm there, some about this, some about that. But we can tell something about the structure of the Psalms from the way it's laid out in the Bible. There are five sections in it. Here we go on the screen. Book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And it's divided up into these different psalms as you go through the 150 that we have. And there is a discernible structure there built right into it, but also within that. Book one, mostly about David. 38 of those psalms are written by him or they've got a, a title about him. Book two, similarly, a lot about David. 18 of those psalms are written about him. And they're very optimistic, books one and two, in general. Books 1 and 2 of the Psalms, you get to Psalm 72, and it's a high point. It's all about Solomon, how we're going to crown the next king. The king after David, he's going to be even better. It's going to be terrific. It's a fantastic, optimistic crest of a wave. And then you get to book 3, where we are at the moment, the last couple of weeks. And certainly we know from the specific context, like last week in Psalm 74, things are not rosy anymore. They're not optimistic it is 587 BC. They are picking their way through the rubble of the burning temple and they're thinking, what happened to all the hope in the king that we thought was going to come? 
Psalm 88, perhaps the lowest point in the Psalter, Psalm 89, is this big lament, end of book three. What happened to your promises to the king, O Lord? Fascinatingly, books four and five, although you continue to get ups and downs in the Psalms, they end on this fantastic forever perspective where it's praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, the last four Psalms, alleluia Psalms. And it's through the bruises that they've worn. The Jewish people are still able to say, praise the Lord. There's something eternal coming here. We know that the kings have been disappointing, but we are pressing on, looking to the future, and we're trusting the Lord. So I really like that about the Psalms, that they're, they're not written by the popular guys. So this was not by the sort of uh, ancient equivalent of the, the jock and the homecoming queen in high school. You know, they, they were written by the, the guys who were sort of bullied and pushed around and, and called names in the playground. They're, they're the songs written by those people who are encouraged to hope in the Lord. It's the faithful Jews here singing this psalm at first. They're realistic about life. And it's as if they're saying, we've been pushed around. There is nothing particularly strong or impressive about our life right now. And yet, this is what makes it all the more beautiful. And yet we trust the Lord. We praise him. So let me say to you, if, if you feel of a similar ilk... If you're one of the people of God, but you've been bruised and pushed around, if there is nothing particularly impressive about your life at the moment, then you're in good company and you're reading a good psalm. Because through the bruises, the God's people down the ages have been able to say, and yet there is something that I'm hoping in. And yet I will boast, not about myself and my circumstances, but about God. If you currently are feeling pretty impressive in life, if on the coffee table of your life there are some impressive items, traits about yourself that you're pretty proud of, then I think this might become uncomfortable reading because we'll talk about the arrogant, the proud, those who think they have big horns. I'll explain. So first of all, it's the people who praise God. Secondly, that's, that's really the application. It's the people who praise God. The, the main thing behind that is God who judges. It's God who judges, verses 2 to 8. And this is, of course, how God shows his strength. He judges. Have a look at verse 2. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. So that's stated there, you see. God judges with equity, with fairness. The, the I there is emphatic. I, God says, I choose the appointed time. It's written twice in Hebrew just so we get the message. It should be underlined. I am totally in control of this process. I set the date for the court hearing for humanity. I've got all the evidence ready to go. And of course, equity. He, he is totally fair. He's even-handed. That thing I long for as a parent, that I would just be totally even-handed in my dealings with everybody in my household. The same thing is stated again, just verse 7, if you drop down. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. Do you get the idea? It's God who judges. That's the main idea. He judges everyone, even the strongest bullies. Everyone. And then it gets rather colorful. And you get these three images in this psalm, the pillars, the, the horns, and the cup. And they're ways of expanding this idea that God will judge, and no one else has the right or the strength to do it. So let me, I just want to walk you through these. That's our sermon today. I want to walk you through these three images about how God judges. And then hopefully it will lead us to, to praise him. Firstly, 
He holds the pillars. Verse 3. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. There's something unshakable about God, so that even when the rest of the world is in turmoil and it's quaking, the earth and all its people, everybody, quakes. It is God who holds the pillars firm. So I think we're to, we're to imagine an enormous building, an enormous pillar like this one, you know, and God, if that's the whole earth, God is holding it firm, even though the whole thing is suffering an earthquake, some sort of physical earthquake or some sort of emotional, political earthquake. Is God standing there saying, I will keep this building up. I take it would mean something about the natural order here. So I hold the pillars of the earth firm. God, of course, is the one who puts air in our lungs every day, who uh, makes day turn into night, night turn into day, every, every morning, every evening. There's a regularity to the way he governs the world. It is God who uh, makes right and wrong and tells us which is which. God holds the pillars of the earth firm. He holds the pillars. I was talking to um, a, a guy earlier this week. I, I, I popped in to see if someone could get a picture framed for me. And there was, a, there was this uh, man I got chatting to him. I, as soon as I told him I was a minister, he just wanted to talk and talk and talk. And uh, he said, um, I, I wanted to talk about the picture being framed, but he was intent on this. He said, you, you know that guy? Who's that guy? Um, he's a scientist. Uh, yeah, you probably know his name. Um, you know, he's really outspoken. Uh, not a Christian man. Uh, I said Dawkins. Yeah, he said Dawkins. Yeah, that's the guy. Uh, Dawkins, I just think he's living in a bubble. I mean, I, I expect him, very elo- eloquent man, but he's living in a bubble, isn't he? I mean, us ordinary people, he said, we think there's probably something out there, and we need something to be out there when, you know, life hits the fan. He didn't say when all the pillars of the earth shake, but he could have done if he knew Psalm 75. Dawkins, Dawkins he's living in a bubble. And we carried on talking from there. I've made an appointment to go and... Uh, pick a picture up just so I can talk to him about it a bit more. But I think he's right, isn't he? The, the people of the earth know that actually they're not so strong as they think because there are moments in life when everything around me seems to be shaking and there, there's got to be something out there. There is. When all the pillars of the earth shake. And of course, the great news of this psalm is there is somebody. He's the Lord. And he holds the pillars firm. Bad news is the next image. He cuts off the horns. Have a look at verse 4. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. Verse 10 picks this idea of the horns up again. It says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, that the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. You check out the footnote here, footnote C at the bottom of the page in our Bibles. It says, horns here symbolize strength, also verses 5 and 10. This is a recurring theme in the Bible where um, the strong of the earth are depicted as these beasts, livestock, and the strongest beasts have horns, and it's a bit like that with human beings. The strongest ones are depicted with strong horns. They're big beasts with horns. And God says, that's no problem to me. Don't lift your horns up to heaven. I can just slice them off. He cuts off the horns. For a short time in my youth, uh, we lived on a farm. We weren't farmers, uh, but uh, we rented this farmhouse on a working farm. And outside the kitchen window, alarmingly close, in fact, to this rented house that we had, uh, there were some bulls kept, two bulls, in fact. And they popped up every year when you needed to graze in that field, and the farmer would put them there. 
They were massive, you know, like a bull in the prime of his life, just enormous muscles, massive feet and horns, so like you wouldn't believe. You know, the, the ones that don't just go like that, they go woo, and then out like that, you know, coming to a, a big point at the side. Tubals in one field. Sometimes when I was making toast in the morning, you'd look up, and because the perimeter wall of the field was really close to the kitchen window, you get a big, you know, there'd be a bull six feet away from me. Tubals in one field, and... Uh, about once a year, uh, probably when the hormones were really going in the bulls, they would fight each other. And they would do that thing that you sometimes see bulls doing in cartoons. You know, they would paw at the ground and they would <laughs> snort. And then they would lower their horns and <laughs> charge at each other. And they would fight. They would lock horns until one of them usually broke off a horn of the other one. And at the minute the horn breaks, <laughs> the fight is over. I think, I know nothing about biology really, but I imagine the minute the horn breaks, that is a sign that, you know, that this match is done. Uh, that's a sign of strength. And the strongest part of your body, Mr. Bull, is now broken in bits. So you lose. And they would retreat humbly, contritely to the other side of the field. The same in, in ancient Judah. You know, they didn't have missiles or nukes. They didn't have tanks. They had bulls and horses. They had livestock. So this is the image they use when they want to talk about strength. They, say they, they talk about one of the biggest animals that they've got and the strongest part of its body. And they say that represents the arrogant person on earth. Those horns. And God is able to cut that off if he wants to. So if you lift your horns against heaven, it's a bit like you know the bull getting ready for a fight. <laughs> And lifting your horns against heaven and saying, I can take you on. God, I'm a human being and I'm strong enough. I can take you on. And God looks at that and says, that's ridiculous. You're a creature. I'm the creator. Don't be silly. Don't lift your horns against heaven. Don't speak defiantly against me. You don't know what you're doing. In the Bible, horns become this recurring image. It's fascinating. I spent a fascinating time tracing horns through the Bible this week. It comes up a lot more often than I thought. So, uh, as well as in the Psalms, they come up in Daniel, which was our other reading I asked Jeannie to read. Also, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Zechariah, Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, they make another appearance. You, you've got these visions of horns, and they're supposed to be symbolic for the proud, the arrogant people of the earth rising up. And often you get a little horn growing up out of someone's head in a vision. And they become the symbol of pride and defiance against heaven. They're all symbolizing strength. And generally in the Bible, when you get these visions which recur, that the horns are fighting and boasting and growing. That's the things they tend to do in the visions. They fight, as in a bullfight. So the nations say, I'm going to gore you. That's the language you get. And the nations go into battle. They boast, that is, they talk trash. You know, they, they say, oh, you're nothing, I'm going to fight you. And they boast about it. They fight, they boast, and then they grow. Usually in a vision, you get this vision of a horn growing and growing and growing, which is normally a picture of a, a prominent nation, a political power on the rise, and the horns grow and grow and grow until they're bigger, which is what you get here as they raise their horns to heaven. Which is supposed to be terrifying when we read all those visions stacked up in the Bible, these terrifying horns on many-headed beasts sometimes. I think also just a little bit funny. I think it's supposed to be a little bit funny because then it's as if the, the visions stack up and we read about, and there's another horn growing, and we've seen this before. You know, another, oh, another horn talking trash about how they're going to beat all the nations. We've heard that one before. And uh, God, of course, looks down at the horns and says, don't be ridiculous. 
It is as if you know, God is looking down at the field of bulls. If the whole earth is just a field of bulls, you know, human beings fighting with one another, saying, I'm stronger than you. And he says, it'd be ridiculous. I'm the farmer. I made you all. Daniel 7, this really comes to a head, which is why I wanted that particular reading read. It's just a, a, a crucial point in the Bible. And do you notice it's a famous, famous passage about the Son of Man judging. Jesus, of course, is without doubt the Son of Man in the New Testament, what he calls himself. So he's the one entrusted with judgment by the Ancient of Days, and he takes his seat and books are open. So Jesus is the judge. But then you also get horns in that passage. You get this boastful horn growing and talking trash against all the other nations, and then he just shuts up as soon as Jesus turns up. It's God who judges. Human beings have a very fine way of con- convincing ourselves that we're something strong. We, we fight and we boast and we grow in stature as much as we possibly can and we try to make our horns as long and as impressive as possible. We fight for long hours in the gym. Well, I don't, but some of you do. Lifting heavy weights, trying to make myself as strong and impressive as I can to, to, to boast subtly about myself, that, uh, that, uh, how, how fit and strong I am. We fight for long years to build a career for ourselves and boast to ourselves and others in in any acceptable way that we can about how strong my career has become. We might fight long and hard to build a family, the perfect family, and subtly boast about it, our children, our spouse, whenever we get the opportunity. We, We fight and we boast and we grow in as many ways as we possibly can. We're like bulls in a field strutting around and saying to ourselves, ah, I finally made it. I am stronger than the other bulls around me. And of course, the ultimate arrogance is that I may be slightly stronger than the next bull, but I dare not raise my horns to heaven and say I'm stronger than you. Actually, we're not very strong. My horns, they're not going to last. It doesn't take much, does it? I lift something too heavy in the wrong way, my back is gone. That's That's one of the strongest muscles in my body, and it only takes a second. Retirement comes around quicker than I expect, I'm told. Or a recession, or a burnout, or some health problem, or family problem. Ouch. That's my strong career, just gone. Tragedy strikes in my family. Illness, or death, or disappointment in some member. Ouch, that's the strong family that I was taking such pride in. Just, that's gone. We're all rather like those boastful horns in the Bible in some way. We don't have to be a whole superpower nation to work this out. We've all tried raising our horns up to heaven and saying, look at me, I've made something of myself. And God looks down and says, don't be ridiculous. As I mentioned to you last week, my my uncle died suddenly of cancer. And um, before he died, he asked me to take his funeral. So I'm currently contemplating in about two weeks' time, I have to take my uncle's funeral I have to stand up there with the coffin in front of my whole extended family and say, Uncle John didn't expect to die. Two weeks of cancer and he was gone. Which one of us is going to be next? We are not as strong as we think. There's no good saying, I'm enough on my own. I'm strong enough. Look at my horns. God will cut them off. 
Sometimes he cuts off horns in this life. Sometimes um, because God has built into the natural order of the world that uh, the, the pride comes before a fall, as the Bible says. Sometimes just very, very proud people get up so far and then everyone else makes sure they come down again. Sometimes people get all the way to the grave and they're stronger and stronger and they're the strongest bull in the field and then God promises a day when he will bring the, the proud very low. He cuts off the horns. And thirdly, and finally, he pours out the cup. There are two cups in the book of Psalms. One cup is the, uh, the cup of joy, if you might, you might call it. It's a cup of joy, like a champagne flute. And uh, Psalm 23, you know that famous psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My cup overflows with joy. God has filled my cup with fantastically good things, blessings. It's the cup of joy. There's also another cup, which is mentioned here in this psalm. This is a bad cup. It's a cup that I wouldn't want to drink. And it's the cup of justice. So you've got the cup of joy and also the cup of justice. Look at verse 6. No one from east or west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. And in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. You see, this is a bad cup that you do not want to have to drink. There's the cup of joy, but there's also the cup of justice. It's foaming wine. It's drunk by the wicked. It's given by God to the the proud people of the earth and saying, drink this. This is your punishment. So it's a cup of God's wrath and anger. Which cup, if I may ask, which cup do you think you deserve to drink? The cup of joy. The cup that eternally overflows with good things that God will give me in this life, but particularly in heaven forevermore. The cup of joy, Psalm 23. Or the cup of justice. The cup that says to every human being, I'm going to treat you fairly for the life you've lived on my planet, in my field. Which cup? If I might push that a little bit further... Which cup do you think Jesus Christ deserves to drink? Jesus Christ, the, the perfect man, came to earth, never did a thing wrong, kind to everybody, gave us some of the most beautiful teaching in the world, lived the perfect life according to God's law. Which cup ought he to drink? Let me tell you something amazing. The night before Jesus dies, it's Maundy Thursday, it's springtime, he's praying in a garden. Jesus Christ, praying. What could be more wonderful? What could be more harmonious and brilliant? Which cup is he talking about? This one. He says very famously in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, my soul is overwhelmed with trouble. We're told he's sweating drops of blood because he's going through so much anguish. And he says, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus Christ, in the garden, the perfect man, he drinks the cup of justice. And what he's doing is, is taking the punishment, he's taking the justice that I deserve and you deserve if you're a believer, and he's drinking it down to his very dregs. He's having it poured out on him in full, right down to the last drop. So that you and I might taste a cup of joy forever. Isn't that the best thing you've ever heard? You and I are invited to sip wine at the heavenly banquet forever from Jesus' own cup. 
because he drank from this one and I get to drink from this one. So how about you? That's how the psalm ends with a a how about you. Look at verse 9. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. It invites you to, to say, as for me, what about me? We began boasting and, and praising about God, and we finished that way too. What are you, what are you going to boast in? What will you praise? Is it yourself? Will you go around strutting for the rest of your life around a field saying, look at me, look at how strong I am. I've tried that. I would much rather spend my life boasting and praising about one who is infinitely strong and infinitely fair. I would much rather spend my life thanking Jesus Christ for drinking this cup so that I might drink from this cup. Let's do that together now. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning. We recognize you and we thank you for making us uh, recognize that you are the God who will judge. Thank you, in fact, that you are all these things, Jesus Christ. You are the, the, the pillar, the eternal son of God who keeps the earth firm. We thank you, you. You are the horn of God, the really strong one who God raised up at just the right time when we needed someone to be strong. We thank you that you are the drinker of the cup who was willing to drain it down to its very dregs. Jesus Christ, we praise you. You are the God who judges when we realize that we really, really need that. We long for justice. And thank you for delivering it in the most amazing way. We are sorry for how we've raised up our horns against heaven. We're sorry for our defiance. We're sorry it grieves us for all that is going on in the world at the moment. And we cry out to you for justice and we trust you to bring it. And with the psalmist, we praise you, God. Amen.